Welcome to the Florida Law Podcast, episode 16. I'm Rebecca Valentina Oropa, and I'm a lawyer practicing civil law in Florida, and we are back now after having a little bit of a holiday break. So we're going to jump into it, and we have some great cases today. So in this podcast, we're going to seek and comment to and explain newsworthy opinions issued by the Florida Courts and its District Courts of Appeal, and while these courts are in session, we'll be releasing some episodes accordingly. So today, my guest is Santiago Oroca, a lawyer who practices criminal law in Florida. Hi, hello. How are you? Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email us at floridalawpodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in co-hosting an episode of this podcast or have any other ideas, please drop us a line. And we will have a disclaimer at the end of this podcast, so please be sure to listen to it. Now, Santiago, we're back after our break here. Tell me a little bit about the first tease that you have for the first case that you're going to talk about today. This is jump into it. an opinion I found very interesting, an opinion of the uh, <clears throat> United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. Uh, it's our federal uh, district court of appeals. And uh, I think it's an opinion that every criminal def- uh, defense lawyer should read. Okay, great. And the next case that we'll have on today's program that I will talk about is can insurance companies sue law firms for malpractice when hiring them to defend their insurers? Okay. And the second case I would like to speak about is an opinion uh, by the District Court of Appeals of the State of Florida, 5th District, and it's an opinion on uh, cross-examination in a sexual battery case involving a minor. This particular case, the minor was, when the incident happened, five years old. And finally, on today's program, I will, we will answer the question about whether plastic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons are the same when it comes to medical malpractice cases in Florida. Good. So, how do you want to start? Well, we'll start with this case that you have that you said that every criminal lawyer should read. Well, I think it's a very interesting opinion. It has to do with two things. Number one, um, juries, deadlocks, juries. And number two, with the federal standard to uh, reverse state convictions. It's it's a very interesting opinion. Uh, The facts of the opinion are uh, as follows. This is an opinion of uh, the case of Sunar Robert Brewster, versus Gary Hatzel, Attorney General of the State of Alabama. It was published by the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit uh, on January 22, 2019. So it's really a very recent opinion. And it has to do with uh, the following facts. There was a trial against Mr. Brewster in the State of Alabama. During the trial, Mr. Uh, Brewster face charges for two counts of armed robbery that could, and in fact did, uh, put him in prison for the rest of his life. He was sentenced at the end, was found guilty, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. And he was sentenced, and this is the problem, by a jury that deliberated 11 hours in two days, but in six times the jury went back to the courtroom telling the judge we are deadlocked. We are deadlocked. We cannot reach an agreement. We cannot reach an agreement. 
until finally the sixth time the reaction agreement and the federal court of appeals explains the following they say that in um, all their times a number of methods were used to ensure that the juries reach a unanimous verdict that through uh, 14 to 17 centuries uh, one method was accelerating unanimity one common method was to prohibit jurors from eating or drinking until they agreed on a verdict. Oh, so if you're hungry, you're going to be more likely to come to an answer. Well, it's more or less like we have today for the election of the Pope in the Vatican that they are closed in a room and they cannot leave the room unless they reach an agreement to avoid what happened centuries ago that no agreement was reached. And they left and the Vatican was left with the Pope. Well, I guess that's the explanation for that. It says that there are extreme cases, uh, explains the very famous trial, historically important, of William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, uh, in which the jury deadlocked on the most serious charge, and the judge uh, responded by threatening to have the juror, it was uh, the juror that was not able to agree with the rest of the jury, branded, unless the jury agreed that the defendants were guilty as uh, charged. And when no verdict was forthcoming, even with the threatening, the threat of branding, the judge looked the jury room without meat, drink, fire, and tobacco until they could agree. But it didn't work. So the judge threatened to cut Bachelors, the dissenting juror, throat if there was not a verdict. So even under that a threat, Mr. Uh, Bushell did not batch and kept saying, I vote, I don't only one voting for no guilty. So at the end, the jury was uh, dissolved without a verdict, but all of them were fine. The Court of Appeals decided to strike down the fines. That's an example that opens the uh, uh, opinion of the 11th uh, Court of Appeals now. What they say essentially is that uh, they sent six notes, this particular... Uh, okay, we're back in present day, right? Yes, no in present day, history not history. Lane. They sent six notes. That the first note informed the judge that they were deadlocked nine to three for a conviction. And that the judge, after the first note, told them, okay, go back and try to deliberate. Then the second day, they came back with another note saying we are 11 to 1 in favor of a conviction but the whole uh, holdout juror uh, is continuing to hold out and doesn't want to deliberate anymore. The judge then uh, told them okay you go back to the jury room I'm reading the Allen charge which is the charge that normally is read by juries by judges when juries cannot reach an agreement but it's read one time only once okay read the other a charge and send them back to deliberate. Well, the jury came back and the fourth person uh, informed the judge that the uh, individual that did not want to agree with the rest, I mean the, the holdout, uh, in favor of not guilty, was not deliberating and um, was doing crosswords passes. Okay, so the one holdout was basically sitting there crossing his arms around his chest, yes. 
and doing the crossroads instead of participating in deliberations. Okay. And at that time, the judge ordered the bailiff all reading materials taken out of the jury room. Okay. And just 18 minutes after all reading materials were removed, the jury came with a guilty verdict. So 18 minutes after the judge took away the crosswords. Yes. Okay. Came back. After the sixth time, came back. Okay. And the defendant then was found guilty and uh, convicted to two uh, um, lies for robbery. Well, the problem here is the following. The defendant then uh, filed an appeal. Um, in direct appeal, the Court of Appeals of Alabama said, well, uh, we cannot review, uh, we don't find anything wrong because your defense attorney did not object. As the defense attorney did not object, did not raise an objection, we cannot review uh, as a mistake of law what the judge did, ordering them to go back to the jury fifth time until the sixth time, until the sixth time they came back with the guilty jury. Well, the defendant then uh, asked for certiorari from the Supreme Court of the State of Alabama uh, that denied it. Okay? So the defendant then went to federal court. And in federal court, there is a procedure under uh, Section 2254 for the request of habeas corpus. But that procedure has a very narrow, narrow, narrow standard. Okay? That procedure requires that the claim has been litigated okay, and decided in state court. That has been exhausted in a state court. The defendant did exhaust the claim in an direct appeal and also filed a post-conviction uh, request to, for habeas corpus in the state of Alabama. But the course of the state of Alabama understood the defendant's claim, that was a project claim, as uh, one of these instructions, one of these five times the jury uh, was told go back and keep uh, deliberating was coercive. The state court in Alabama said because the defendant did not specify which one was coercive, therefore it had no merits. Although it granted an evidentiary hearing. At the end of the evidentiary hearing, the state of Alabama found that mm, the defendant had not come forward with evidence to support that any particular of those five times had been coercive. And therefore, his uh, collateral attack was denied. When he went to state the federal court, the first problem he had to face was that under Section 2254, um, it's also uh, known as ADEPA, A-D-E-P-A, because it's the anti-terrorist and uh, Debt Penalty Act that passed in the 90s, the standard is number one, as I was telling you, it has, the claim has to be exhausted in the state court, number one. And second, the claim to grant relief must be, okay, must be adjudicated by the state court contrary to or under unreasonable uh, interpretation of the United States Supreme Court doctrine. If there is not a Supreme Court uh, opinion on point, okay, therefore 
this uh, federal court cannot grant uh, habeas corpus. So it's extremely restrictive. So out of the hundreds of thousands of um, habeas corpus uh, filed by state prisoners in federal court, there is a minimal, minimal percentage of uh, federal habeas corpus granted to state prisoners. Well, with the federal court in this case, I, I have to say that not the magistrate um, that elaborated the first report uh, denied the claim, the state claim in federal court, and the circuit uh, court judge denied the claim. But the court of appeals reviews the claim and say, well, the problem here is that we understand that the claim has not been adjudicated on the merits in the state court. Because, in fact, what the prisoner is a pro se uh, defendant, the, what the prisoner is saying is not that his, uh, any of his, uh, these instructions were coercive and that his attorney did not fail to, uh, his attorney failed um, to object to a coercive opinion. No, what he says is that in all, all these instructions were coercive and no one, his defense attorney, objected to it, okay? So, because this claim that we are examining now was not presented in the state court, we are going to apply a different standard, which is the uh, traditional standard for uh, an efficient assistant of counsel claims. So, until the uh, traditional standard, okay, uh, for an efficient, an efficient assistant of counsel claims, well, we have to see whether uh, a reasonable attorney would have objected to all these instructions uh, to send the jury back to the library. And the answer is yes, okay? So they give him a window. Yes, the answer is yes, it, it would have. Because it would have, and um, the attorney did not. And there are no reasons, no good reasons, not to have objected, not to have objected uh, to all these claims, the Strickland standard, which is the traditional standard, applies, and therefore we are going to grant uh, this petition of habeas corpus, and we are ordering the state of Alabama to take this man to trial again. I think it's very interesting as to how the federal standard applies for habeas corpus uh, filed by state prisoners in federal court. And again, uh, as to this problem, that happens quite frequently. When a second Allen charge is too much, and of course when a fifth of a sixth, like in this case, is, is really excessive. You know? well, in this case, it's easy to understand. But what happens when uh, the jury is deadlocked, cannot reach an agreement, and um, what is the proper procedure to follow? It, it, there is a very good roadmap for those interested in those uh, areas in this opinion. Thank you, Santiago. My pleasure. Well, we're going to turn into a completely different area of law. We're going to turn to the Fourth District Court of Appeals, so back to state court here, and we're going to examine something called the tripartite relationship. Okay. So what is that? I will tell you. What that is, is that if, if uh, a person owns a small business, they usually have an insurance policy, 
to defend them against any claims or lawsuits brought against them. And normally what happens is if such a thing occurs, their insurance company will retain an attorney to defend them. Now the insur insurance company has a duty to defend and indemnify the business up until the policy limits of that policy. And at that point, there is sort of an interesting relationship between the law firm, the insurance company, and the insured business. And so this case gets into the sausage making process a little bit into that and delves into why this these this tripartite relationship that we have um, can be a little bit dicey sometimes. So here's what happened when, when things went wrong. Well, how, okay. So this case is Arch Insurance Company versus Kubicki Draper, a law firm. It came out of the Fourth District Court of Appeals, like I said, very uh, recent case from January 23rd, 2019. And in this case, um, some of the facts I got for today's podcast are from the Daily Business Review. Because some of them, well, the more interesting things were not exactly included in the facts of the opinion here. Um, what happened essentially was that the insurance company, Arch, hired Kubicki Draper to defend the insured in the suit. Um, it seems like the suit was against an accounting firm of some kind. Um, and the suit settled within the policy limits, according to the Daily Business Review, of three and a half million dollars. The policy limits were five million dollars. And apparently, um, the potential exposure in the suit, according to the Daily Business Review, would be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So the insurance company um, alleged in this case that there was professional negligence, um, legal malpractice, um, with how the law firm handled the insurance negligence suit. They alleged that the law firm delayed filing of a statute of limitations defense, which resulted in this large settlement of three and a half million dollars, which was using the insurance company's money, and which would have been avoided had the law firm raised the statute of limitations defense earlier in the suit. So in response, the law firm then filed a motion for summary judgment and alleged, well, Hey, insurance company, you lacked standing to sue us because I am the, the client in this case is the insured, the firm, uh, the accounting firm, and you were not in privity with us. So the law firm here then took a look at the client's rights letter that was sent to um, the accounting firm, which did not indicate at all that they were also representing the insurance company. And they went back to Florida Supreme Court precedent, which says that Florida courts have uniformly limited attorneys' liabilities for negligence in the performance of their duties to clients with who they share privity of contract. Mm -hmm. So the only instances in which in the state of Florida that privity has been relaxed is where there was an apparent intent of the client to benefit a third party. In Florida courts, the Supreme Court has said in the Angel case, have refused to expand this exception to include incidental third-party beneficiaries. So they turned in their defense and their motion for summary judgment to the contract here to take a look at um, the fact that there was no dual representation between the insurance company and the client. And the, the insurance company, um, the, the judge in this case, granted the motion for summary judgment on behalf of the law firm, alleging that there was no privity of contract. The insurance company fought very hard. Um, they alleged uh, about seven federal district court uh, cases, which uh, argued that there should be an expansion of this precedent. But at the time that the judge granted this motion, 
there was no controlling Florida precedent and that these federal courts were simply guessing as to where the Florida courts would go. And the circuit court here would not go down that guessing road without any binding precedent in Florida state courts. So based on the appeal here, the appellate panel ruled that though the insurance company here makes great public policy arguments that involve common sense, they were not going to prevail on this one. The insurance company was saying that essentially that there would be dire consequences if a law firm would be shielded from liability resulting from their malpractice in defending the clients in this case and that the insurance company would be, quote unquote, holding the bag for these malpractice decisions and be paying more money than they should be and not having any recourse against the law firm who, in their opinion, didn't perform to the professional legal standards. However, the fourth district court said that we're bound to follow the laws that exist, not as the insurer argues it ought to be, and that the Supreme Court in Florida has only recognized two situations in which a third party was permitted to pursue a legal malpractice claim against counsel who they were not in privity with. One would be in a will drafting situation and two would be in a situation involving lawyers drafting private placement memoranda, which is essentially for shareholders, it's a letter regarding shareholder shares. So based on that, there was nothing that the insurance company could do on this case and that they affirmed the lower court's decision to grant summary judgment for the law firm in this matter. So if I understand well, as of today, a law firm has no liability to any third party with those two exceptions you cited. And in the case of insurance, their liability is limited to? A little bit of a nuance, okay? In this case, the insurance company paid within the policy limits. The policy limits was $5 million. This is not in the opinion, this is in the article here about this case. The policy limits were $5 million, they paid out $3.5 million. There is somewhat of a, here's maybe there could be wiggle room if there was a settlement payout in excess of the policy limits, but the court didn't comment on that here. Okay, okay, that's good. That's interesting. So we should make a break and come back, no? All right, we'll be back after this. So Santiago, we're going to turn back to you. You've got another criminal case for us? Yes, very difficult, very painful for everybody because these cases are really difficult and stretch to the limit the rules of evidence. This is an opinion issued last week by the 5th District Court of Appeals in Florida. It's Jose Luis Reco versus the State of Florida. It was issued January 25th, 2019. And essentially, this is a case in which the defendant was charged with sexual battery on a minor. The minor is five years old. And what happened in this case is that the minor told his parents what this caretaker, the defendant was a caretaker, had done to him. The defendant was a caretaker and was a male, what he had done to him. Based on that, there was an investigation and the state filed charges against the defendant. 
The five-year-old was uh, interviewed by a forensic uh, expert and gave some statements. And then, uh, when he was around eight years old, the defendant, uh, the victim, was deposed in the presence of an expert, a forensic expert. Again, trial came, and at trial, the judge ruled the following: the defense would not be permitted to cross-examine the victim that at that time was nine years old, eight and a half, because the victim did not intellectually understand the concept of cross-examination. Um, the judge found also make some findings that it would be improper for an eight or nine-year-old uh, to be in the stand for such a long time in, in these conditions. The judge nevertheless ruled that if the defendant wanted to read some of the transcripts of the deposition or the forensic expert, the defendant would be allowed to do that. Well, when the course examination time arrived at the trial, the defendant, counsel for defendant, uh, tried to read portions of their deposition uh, and portions of the initial forensic statement. The state objected, arguing that those portions were not related to the questions that the state had asked in direct examination to the victim. And the judge agreed. So it was outside the scope? Is that what? That was the argument, okay. that it was outside the scope of the questions asked in direct. And the judge agreed. So the Court of Appeals, in reversing the conviction, says that a criminal defendant should be afforded wide latitude to cross-examine the state witnesses, especially when cross-examining when cross-examining a key prosecution witness like the victim. Um, then proceeds to say that although the questions, the portions, maybe were not directly related to the questions, they were related in a general sense and very important sense, which is the credibility of the victim. Being the victim the only accuser, there was no more evidence, seems in this particular case, uh, the credibility of the victim whether the victim had given, even if he was five years old or eight years old, had given different accounts at different moments was um, crucial for the rights of the defendant. And therefore, the Court of Appeals granted a new trial. I think it's interesting because, number one, what the Court of Appeals says is that opens the door that maybe the depositions uh, and other statements of the victim uh, that normally are considered in criminal cases are considered hearsay, are not admissible in criminal cases, may be admissible and may be legally uh, would suffice the requirement of cross-examination. But that, in that situation, it would be the whole of those statements and transcripts, not only phrases, not only excerpts. And also it's important, in my opinion, because um, points to something that is true, that many times happens in criminal trials, is when the state tries to close the cross-examination, arguing that 
is outside of the scope, when in fact there are few, few things outside of the scope because what is at trial is the credibility of the witness. So I found that that objection was rarely sustained. Yeah, outside the scope objection. Well. Not frequently. It's not, but you have to understand the special circumstances of this case. I mean, we are talking about a five years old. We are talking about somebody who is a trial charged with a horrendous crime and a five years old victim uh, in which his credibility is sold. What a difficult balance to strike sure. between. Well, difficult balance, but you know, our criminal justice system. Uh, is based on the idea of the presumption of innocence and that the defendant has to prove nothing. Absolutely. The government has to prove the case beyond and to disclosure as a reasonable doubt. No? Absolutely. For, for all these reasons, I found this, uh, this case interesting. All right. So the last case, and we're going to wrap up after this one, is out of the Fifth District Court of Appeals, Michael Riggenbach, MD, in the Orlando Orthopedic Center versus Chad Rhodes. This is turning back again to the ever-pitfall pitfalls in medical malpractice litigation. So, the plaintiff in this case had sought treatment from Dr. Riggenbach, um, who performed wrist surgery involving insertion of an anchoring mechanism, which he alleged was improperly seated and became lost inside his wrist. And he alleged that, he was, uh, that the doctor was negligent in performing the surgery, which resulted in the need for another surgery and caused permanent injury to his wrist. So the plaintiff sought served a pre-suit notice of intent, which is required in the Mid-Mouth statute, uh, to initiate litigation. And as required, they also included a verified written medical expert opinion signed by a Dr. Kriegel, MD, who was a board-certified plastic surgeon and ear, nose, and throat doctor to corroborate the grounds that um, the orthopedic surgeon in this case did not perform up to medical standards. The defendants in this case objected they moved to dismiss because their contention was that the plaintiff's expert affidavit was not authored by a physician who practiced in the same specialty as Dr. Rudenbach. There was an evidentiary hearing in the lower court, and the uh, plastic surgeon testified that although he was not an orthopedic surgeon, he had performed the same type of surgery that um, the plaintiff had undergone about five to eight times in three years. And in his practice as a plastic surgeon, he also included hand surgery as well. But he admitted that he never specialized in orthopedic surgery. So the judge um, denied the motion to dismiss. So what's interesting here is an interesting reminder of the exceptions and, and, and interesting parts of the medical malpractice action. Normally, when a motion to dismiss is denied in lower court, there is no legal final decision on the merits of the case. There is an exception, okay? Medical malpractice, pre-suit requirements, you are allowed, a defendant is allowed to appeal a denial of a motion to dismiss. So there's an extra um, appellate review here. So the court went back over the legislature and what they passed. So there are interlocutory appeals in uh, medical malpractice. Did they know that? Thank you for teaching me that today. Yes, that's, that's an important point. Um, okay. People forget that sometimes. But the court here went back to what the legislature had passed in 2013. They amended the definition of a medical expert in these cases. It used to be the same or similar specialty. It just is now the same specialty. So, so it has to be in the same specialty. Not a person, not a doctor who practiced the same, uh, the same, the same surgery like this one, but someone who practices in the same area. Yes, and they went through some other cases, 
where the second district had held that a board-certified podiatrist could not opine on treatment given by a board-certified orthopedic surgeon who would perform surgery on the foot, even though both the podiatrist and the orthopedic surgeon focused primarily on foot and ankle surgeries. These doctors had different trainings, different practices, and different specialties, and it was not the same specialty. So, you know, essentially we have here, again, the fifth district holding here that a plastic surgeon and an orthopedic surgeon do not practice in the same, in the same specialties. The affidavit was statutorily insufficient. They found the plaintiff failed to comply with the pre-suit requirements and granted the motion to dismiss and remanded the case to dismiss um, the suit against the defendant in this case. Sure. Thank you. I learned for you today. Many things, as usual. Thank you. Thank you. So, and this concludes the 16th episode of the Florida Law Podcast with Rebecca Valentino Roca. Let us know what you think. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email us at floridalawpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in co-hosting an episode, please drop us a line. And now for our disclaimer, so our listeners know this podcast cannot and should not be construed as legal advice. This podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only. And if you have a question about a case you may have, we advise you to contact an attorney. And this podcast cannot be construed as creating any legal relationship with any subscriber or listener, listener, and it has not been approved for any credit or legal education state. So, this episode was produced, directed, scripted, and edited by Rebecca Valentina Roca, copywritten, and all rights reserved. So, Santiago, say farewell to our listeners today. Thank you very much. Think of your lesson today. We'll see you next time. I'm...